Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing materials, programs, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A 2014 report from the Public Policy Clinic at the S.J. Quinney College of Law, University of Utah, found that discipline handed down to some students was diverting them out of public schools and into the criminal justice system. Through a combination, they said, of overly harsh zero-tolerance school policies and increased involvement of law enforcement in schools. According to the Deseret News, the report noted that the suspension and expulsion rates are closely correlated with dropout and delinquency rates and found that students who were suspended even once were more likely to drop out of school and that nearly 70 percent of the U.S. prison population consisted of high school dropouts. The report concluded that non-white students, students with mental disabilities as well, received a disproportionate share of the discipline handed out. We're going to address this so-called school-to-prison pipeline on the program today. Later in the program, we'll be talking with Vanessa Walsh, one of the authors of that Public Policy Clinic report. We'll be talking with Luis Garza with Communities United, Nubia Pena from Racially Just Utah, and Leah Farrell with ACL Utah. We begin with Sandra Hollins, who is a representative in the legislature, a Democrat from Salt Lake City, and is planning on introducing a bill on this subject in this legislative session. Representative Hollins, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Welcome to the program. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Uh, so how did you uh, how did you come to this uh, this subject? You heard about this from uh, constituents, uh, personal experience. What? Uh, how did you get involved here? Well, I, I first became um, involved or concerned about the school to prison pipeline um, some years ago. I am a social worker, and the population that I work with are those individuals who are homeless, those who live in poverty, those who are low income. And so um, when I started doing intake with a lot of my clients, I um, learned that um, a lot of them did not have high school diplomas. And so that kind of uh, piqued my interest, and, and, and I started to wonder why. Um, and, of course, the majority of my clients that I work with, a lot of the clients I work with had some type of uh, mental health issue going. And so um, I was just concerned. And later on when I started doing uh, therapy with them and we would talk about their past and we would talk about high school, found out that a lot of them, you know, they fell through the cracks. And um, while they were in high school or in, in um, the public school system, um, they were suspended, they were expelled, they were asked not to come back to that particular school because of behavior issues. Now, so this, this is when I first became interested in it. I didn't have a name for it then. I just knew that there was an issue out there that I was noticing, and there was a pattern out there that I was noticing. Um, and it wasn't until recently, um, with, um, within the past um, year, um, that the school-to-prison pipeline kind of became a front issue, and people started talking about it, which kind of piqued my interest in, in what was going on. And that's pretty stark statistics in, the, in this report. Um, students suspended even once, more likely to drop out of school, and nearly 70% of U.S. prison population consists of high school uh, dropouts. So you're, you were, in your work, you're, you were seeing this at least anecdotally, I guess. Yes. Yes, I, I, I was seeing this. And so, you know, when you look at the statistics, it's staggering when you look at one in three inmates in the Utah State Prison um, don't have a high school dropout. And that when you read the reports, you see there is a correlation between um, students who are suspended or students who are expelled from school and students who uh, will drop out um, of high school. Uh, now, what about, I guess it's all a matter of degree and, and how you handle this, right? Because there, uh, I imagine a lot of parents and administrators would still say there need to be consequences for, you know, if a student misbehaves, still need to be consequences. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that um, holding, we should be holding our kids responsible um, for their behavior. Um but we need to look at the degree to what we are holding them responsible. So if um, 
a child is or a young adult is talking back to a teacher in school through that warrant, bringing in um, a student resource officer, or is there another path that we can be taken to help work with that student to figure out what's going on with him or her um, to provide um, additional services. So, yeah, do I think we need to hold our students accountable? Absolutely. I think that um, that needs to be... um, we do need to do that, but we also need to also um, bring parents in to the to the equation also um, to be able to deal with the discipline and have their input on what's going on. You're, I think you're working on your bill. You're trying to get input to what will likely be the, the main provisions in, in the bill. Um, one of the main provisions in the bill is to look at our SRO office, our student resource offices in the school system, and to better define their role. What is their purpose for being there? Um, some of what I'm hearing from um, student resource officers is that they, um, they're being called into situations where they are where it should be the school that's handling the discipline, the school and the parents that should be handling the discipline, whereas they're being called in um, to to work with this student or to deal with this student. And so what this bill is going to do is going to better clarify their roles in the public school system. Uh, Better clarification, yeah, and and training. Um, What about, it it seems, well, this report states it clearly that uh, uh, non-white students are uh, disproportionately being, I guess, uh, shunted into this school-to-prison pipeline. How do, how do we counteract that? I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't hear your question. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the report says non-white students, minority students, are disproportionately yes. affected by the school-to-prison pipeline. I wonder how how your bill will address that. How do we? How should we counter, counteract that? Yes. we. Um, this bill is going to support training for our student resource officers. And so part of that training is going to be cultural training, and part of that training is also going to be on working with students who have disabilities. Um, because if you look at the statistics, also students with um, disability are, are, um, are more likely to be disciplined in, in, in the school system also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so cultural training. Uh, and, yeah, that is that yeah. it's pretty stark, the statistics about students with disabilities. I don't know, from, from your work, what, or what are you hearing? What, why are students with disabilities being uh, suspended and expelled at a higher rate? I, I think it's, I think we don't have the resources available to be able to work with our students who have mental health disabilities. Um, I recognize that we have teachers who are being asked to do more with less, and we're constantly giving them new mandates that they have to do. And so they're for lack of a better word, at their wit's end. And so they don't have the resources available to them so that if a student who do have a mental health um, disability um, is able to get that help help in school and and we're able to diagnose and and be able to um, treat that um, child in school. Yeah. Uh, so you're still working on the bill. Uh, when do you? Yeah. What, what a timeline for this. What do you? When do you hope to uh, have this finalized and introduced? Well, I'm working on setting up additional meetings because I'm trying to bring everybody to the table to get their input. Um, I've been ta- speaking with um, school administrators. I've been um, meeting with police chiefs, um, um, getting everybody input on what's going on. Um, about it, um, what's going on with this bill, so they can have an input. And so I'm hoping by next week we'll be able to have a finished product that everyone um, that everyone um, agrees on, that we're able to put forward, mm-hmm. and that everybody is comfortable with. Yeah. Um, so hopefully by next week, um, it is, it's a work in progress, and if nothing else, um, I'm proud that we have been able to elevate this conversation um, and talk about what's going on in the school system. Uh, final question. I know we have, no, we have to let you go here. Uh, but uh, what are you hearing from all of these constituents? Uh, are, are they uh, favorable to some sort of bill moving forward? They are. They are. I have heard from um, individuals who are very favorable to this moving forward. I've heard for some, from some parents who say that they're child have gotten caught up in the criminal justice system and when they felt it was unfair. And um, and so they're um, in favor of, of this bill moving forward. 
We've been speaking with Representative Sandra Hollins, a Democrat from Salt Lake City. She is working on a bill to be introduced soon, which will address the school-to-prison pipeline uh, problem. Uh, Representative Hollins, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. Okay, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, coming up later in the program, as we talk about this school-to-prison pipeline phenomenon, we're going to be talking with Luis Garza from Communities United, Nubia Pena from Racially Just Utah, and Leah Farrell with ACLU Utah. Coming up next, following a break, uh, we'll be talking with Vanessa Walsh, who is one of the authors of this study that we've been re- referencing, the title of the study from the Public Policy Clinic at the SGA Quinney College of Law, University of Utah, Finger Paint to Fingerprints, the school-to-prison pipeline in Utah, and Vanessa Walsh also did a separate study on how this is affecting Native American students. More following the break. It is clear that communities in northern Utah, the Uinta Basin, and Utah County need to clean up the air out there. So why do we continue to idle our cars, take short trips around the neighborhood, and avoid public transportation? Utah Public Radio wants to know what it will take to get you to take action. The conversation continues. Share your insight at upr.org. I'm Jeremy Hobson. The prescription drug fentanyl is becoming an increasingly deadly part of the opioid epidemic in the U.S. thanks to drug companies and Mexican cartels. They paid him $50,000 to come up to Sinaloa and teach them how to make uh, fentanyl. And now they say in many cases that they're shipping more fentanyl than heroin up to the United States. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking about the so-called school-to-prison pipeline on the program today. We just heard from Representative Hollins, who is planning on introducing a bill in this session of the legislature. Uh, The uh, 2014 report from the Public Policy Clinic at the University of Utah's law school uh, found that discipline handed down to some students was diverting them out of public schools into the criminal justice system through a combination of overly harsh, zero-tolerance school policies and increased involvement of law enforcement in schools. Uh, they found that uh, students who were suspended even once were more likely to drop out of school. Nearly 70% of the U.S. prison population consisted of high school dropouts. And that non-white students and students with mental disabilities received a disproportionate share of the discipline handed out. We now turn to uh, Vanessa Walsh, who is, I believe, a student at the University of Utah Law School and participated in this, uh, was one of the authors of this public policy clinic's report, also authored a uh, separate report on uh, the effect of this on Native American students. Vanessa Walsh, welcome to the program. Hi, good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. I want to start out with with you. You wrote a a piece, um, I guess, a couple of years ago, um, outlining a personal experience with this. I guess we should say that you you went back to law school uh, in your 40s. Um, uh, and kind, yeah, really <laughs> <late> for you. <laughs> uh, you're one of those returning students. Uh, I was such a student as well. I went back to uh, business school, so it was, uh, it was an interesting experience. Uh, but anyway, you had an experience with your son. Tell us about that. I did. You know, it's it's an interesting story, and honestly, a story that I had completely forgotten about until I started this project. Um, so the way I got involved in this this project was my first year of law school. I had a professor who was looking for a research assistant to analyze the data from the Office of Education. Um, I spent my professional career as an analyst, and so she sought me out and said, will you help us analyze the data? I said, of course. And so as I'm sitting at my desk, kind of working through the, the data, my son, who at the time was 18, asked me what I was working on. And I shared kind of the concept and what I was working on, and he kind of stopped me short and with such great clarity recounted a story from fifth grade that I had completely, completely forgotten about. And it still strikes me how how clearly he remembered it and how clearly for such a, what I thought was a small thing just made such a big impact on him. And to make a, a long story short, I was called, I was at work and I got a call from his principal. Um, he was in He was in fifth grade and the principal said, I need you to come to school. There's an issue with your son. He brought a weapon to school. Right? As a parent, my heart dropped. I'm like, a weapon? What? We don't have any guns in the house. What's going on? So I rushed to the school, and when I 
when I get there, I see my son's backpack sitting on just right inside the principal's door by a chair. And my son collected keychains, and he had a backpack that had maybe, I don't know, 40 or 45 various keychains on there, one of which was just a small novelty pocket knife that his grandmother bought for him at Yellowstone State Park. So just like a small little one-and-a-half-inch $3 pocket knife hanging on his backpack. A teacher had saw that saw that on his backpack, said, that's a knife. We have a zero-tolerance policy for weapons. He was referred to the principal's office, and the principal, under their zero-tolerance policy, was ready to expel my 11-year-old son for this little $3, $3 little pocket knife on his backpack. Wow. Which I thought it was, I, I know, I thought the same yeah. thing. I'm like, what? You said weapon. This is a, I mean, I think if you even try and open it, it's probably going to fall apart. So luckily, I mean, we were able to have a conversation and kind of discuss, yes, I understand this is zero tolerance policy. And I, you know, I think my son was probably, um, I, I would like to think that discussions in that setting would go the same way that they did with my son. But then the more I started getting involved with this project and becoming an, an advocate for this, I realized that more often than not, those conversations go a very different way and they end a very different way for the student with either a suspension and expulsion or a referral to law enforcement because under zero tolerance policy, it is a weapon, and a lot of the safe school policies require an action to be taken. Hmm. And uh, the, that consequence uh, has further consequences, right? Your report finds that if uh, students uh, suspended even once, um, more likely to drop out, and then, then a, a, a large proportion of uh, dropouts in prison. Yes, that's true. That is a study from John, uh, Johns Hopkins University from 2012 that made that correlation about being suspended once in the ninth grade makes you, makes you more likely to drop out. Wow. So it's a, it's a fairly, I mean, that study is only three years old. Yeah. Now, your experience, uh, your son's experience, that was still elementary school. Yes. Right? Uh, yes, and surprisingly in Utah, the school-to-prison pipeline starts at a, it starts at a very early age. I mean, it's... Um, kids as, as young as 12 or 12 and under are being referred to law enforcement. Um, in the state of Utah, in um, the, the year that we analyzed, the 2011-2012 school, school year, there were a little over 7,800 actions given to children in, in elementary schools. Hmm. Uh, I think you drop it. It's a pretty high number. Yeah, that is a high number. I believe in, in your piece, in your op-ed piece, you, uh, you advocate for let's get rid of these policies in elementary school. I am a I am a proponent of not having any referrals to law enforcement or school related arrests for elementary school for kids under twelve. Mm-hmm. And my reason for thinking that is, I think if a child brings a weapon to school, or if a child that young is is acting in a manner in which police need to be involved, there's probably something else going on that needs to be addressed. And I don't think the juvenile justice system maybe it's the best place to address that. I, I think there are many more things going on that need to be addressed rather than, than putting a 10-year-old, uh, arresting a 10-year-old at school. I, I think there are better ways to handle it and different things we can do as a community. What about in, uh, say, middle school, high school? Um, you know, it, I think we remember, or, or at least you can understand, at least on an emotional level, why st- uh, schools adopted zero-tolerance policies. Uh, but as your the report you participated in is is showing us uh, it's, you know, it's maybe too blunt an instrument. Uh, do you think zero-tolerance policies should be done away with? Uh, it ought to be more nuanced from the get-go? Um, I think that some zero-tolerance policies make sense. And to address, I guess, your comment, the zero-tolerance policies, they, they came into favor post-Columbine and, again, post-Sandy Hook. Obviously, we want to have safe schools. Obviously, we want to avert tragedies. And I, I think there is a place for zero-tolerance policies. My concern is that they can be vague, as in the example of my son. And I think they can be... I think there's a lot of subjectivity in their enforcement. I, mm-hmm. I think, and maybe this is what law school has done to me, <laughs> they can be vague. They can be very vague, and so they're open to interpretation. So how I may interpret a, a zero-tolerance policy may look differently than how you interpret a, a zero-tolerance policy, even though both of us have the best of intentions. 
they get interpreted differently. And I think that's when we start seeing some of these disparities in discipline across racial lines and across mm-hmm. school district lines. Well, you know, talking about that, that those disparities, uh, and, and talk about the, the report you did on, on Native American uh, students, uh, just to reintroduce uh, what we're doing here on Access Utah today, we're talking about this so-called school-to-prison pipeline uh, in Utah. Um, and uh, there's a report out from 2014 called Finger Paint to Fingerprints, the school-to-prison pipeline uh, in Utah. Uh, it's out from uh, the University of Utah Law School. And my guest uh, right now is one of the authors of that report. Um, later on, we're going to be talking with several groups on uh, this subject, including uh, Communities United, Racially Just Utah, and ACLU Utah. We're talking with Vanessa Welch right now. Uh, you can join the conversation. Maybe you have an experience as a student or a parent or perhaps a teacher or administrator. Love to get your experience, your thoughts on this at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com. That's our email, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, so, Vanessa Walsh, uh, Representative Holland, said uh, one of the key provisions in her bill that she's going to be introducing is training, mandating training, additional training, including cultural training for school resource officers. I wonder if you'd uh, respond to that, talk about that. Is, is, is that going to be effective? I think it will be effective. Um, nearly half of all of our public schools today across the nation have assigned um, police officers um, known as, as school resource officers or SROs. Um, actually, the National Association of School Resource Officers estimates more than 10,000 police officers serve in schools nationwide. Um, and although I didn't hear um, the representative's um, segment, these officers' roles do vary significantly significantly across schools, with some being charged primarily with enforcement of criminal laws, while others are focused on mentoring, counseling, or and teaching duties. Um, I think, and I, I don't have the, the research to back this up, but I suspect that having a school officer, a, a school police officer in the schools, and just having the presence of an officer in the school, I think that has a significant impact in the numbers of referrals to law enforcement and school-related arrests that we're seeing. I think it's probably adding to the issue of referrals for lower-level offenses, such as fighting without using a weapon or making a threat without using a weapon, more so than we would see without having a police officer in the school. Mm -hmm. I do know I have been involved with the disproportionate minority contact Um, which is a subcommittee of the Utah Board of Juvenile Justice. And they have started implementing um, SRO trainings. I know they have completed Salt Lake and Granite School Districts, and I believe they've recently completed training with Weaver, Alpine, and and Provo School Districts. I think it's a good thing. I think the more understanding that the school administration has with the police officer and the police department that officer is from about their duties and their role in the school I think the more clarity that's there and the more training that those positions have, that's always a good thing, right? There's, there's nothing bad that can come from that. And I think it will make a significant impact in the disparities that we're seeing, and especially in referrals to law enforcement and school-related arrests. But it sounds like uh, perhaps your view is that reduction in the number of SROs might be useful. Um, I'm not necessarily... A, I mean, I'm not opposed to having police officers in the school. I, I understand that we our schools need to be safe, right? I had a child in school. I absolutely want our schools to be safe. I think if there's greater understanding about what that role is and that both sides of the fence, both the police department and the administration, understand what that role is, I think it can be a very impactful and a very productive position to have in our schools. So I'm certainly not opposed against having um, having SROs in the schools, I just think we can do, we can create more clarity around what that looks like. Let's go to uh, our first caller, who is Jennifer in Vernal. Jennifer, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, hi. I know there's very little time. Yeah, my middle well-adjusted child has was incarcerated 60 times. Two of those incarcerations were prison stints. And I guarantee that the taxpayers of the state of Utah, he is now clean and sober. But this this went on for 17 years. Um, if he had been given an fMRI or other tests for ADHD, I guarantee you that 
if money had been spent on treating his ADHD, and of course they want the kids to sit down and, and be quiet in class, very difficult for him to do. Um, the taxpayers would have been, you know, tens of thousands of dollars ahead because he would have been treated for the ADHD instead of incarcerated for his behavior, and then he got into drugs. So it's a, it's a big money saver to deal with this uh, accurately when they're, you know, in, like, middle school, junior high. Otherwise, you're going to blow lots of money on them, locking them up. So anyway, I'm glad they're doing this. I'm glad they're introducing this bill. This is great. Okay. Thanks, Thanks, Jennifer. Appreciate that. Uh, A a couple things there. Uh, First of all, it stood out to me in Jennifer's uh, comment, and I think this is included in the report, uh, Vanessa Walsh, of money. Uh, Money is a factor here. Money is a factor in a couple of different ways. I think everyone would agree that whenever you can prevent an issue up front and prevent it from becoming a bigger issue down the road, that's the desired outcome. That's a little bit harder when you're trying to get money from uh, what's already a taxed state budget for education. But I think we would all agree, and especially to the caller's point, if we can invest money in these issues up front and invest more money in our schools, our education system up front, it's much more effective than investing four or five times the amount of money in the prison system in the back end. I I know that there's been a lot of discussion in the past 18 months about the prison relocation. There's been a lot of discussion about how quickly that population is growing and that the state can't can't afford to house all of the prisoners that we will have by, you know, 20, I think the report said 2030. So I think we would all agree that if we could divert that money that's going to the prison system on the back end and put it in education and prevention in the front end, I think not only does it save dollars, but it prevents the outcome that the caller was just talking about. Mm-hmm. I guess the other point is um, uh, maybe training would help or, you know, a, a better diagnosis for her son. And, and, and that p- perhaps would have changed the way, um, you know, the reaction to her, to her son's actions would, would have come out. Yes, I, I agree. I agree. And I I say that I need to temper that with the data shows that students that are identified with a disability under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act are twice as likely to receive a school discipline action than those that are not. And when I talk about students with disabilities, I think people tend to think we're talking about perhaps the children in chairs or, you know, children who have um, trouble seeing or hearing. But by and large, these are children, as as the caller described, with learning disabilities, dyslexia, ADHD, and in theory, if you have an IHP or if you have an IEP, you have some additional protections in place, so you would expect that children or students identified with disabilities would be disciplined at a lower rate, and we see just the opposite. It's it's double. So it, as a parent, perhaps you're, you're ambivalent about getting a diagnosis if, if the odds go up that there'd be a get into the pipeline, you know? Um, I, I think a parent should never be ambivalent. I think, um, you know, I don't really have a good answer for why or a good explanation about why the rate is double for children identified with disabilities. I mean, I I wish that I had an answer. I have heard some teachers say, um, you know, don't, don't, you know, I, as a teacher, when you're when you're trying to keep your classroom focused on education, and maybe you have someone, a student that's disrupting the classroom, that student needs to be removed, and maybe that's a, a larger population. If you're diagnosed with a dis, you know student with disability or have ADHD, but honestly, I, I can't speak to that. I, I'm not an educator. I'm not. I haven't been in that situation. I, you know, I I wish that I had an explanation for why the numbers are double. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to get to talking about uh, some positive models, and there there are some in Utah. There, there was recently a summit on this, uh, some examples. But we want to go to our next caller, who's Karen in Oxford, Idaho. Karen, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, yes. Um, my son, he's my middle child, and he's been going through a hard time lately. And <clears throat> he recently moved from Utah to Idaho. And he was having some trouble in school in Utah and is having trouble at school now in Idaho. Um, we're kind of on the border here. And one thing that I find extremely frustrating is that he's going through depression and we're trying to help him with medication as such. And he's reporting to me that 
teachers, there's several teachers that are putting him down in class, in front of the whole class, and I just find this behavior completely despicable, and he's been suspended a couple times, and, you know, he's pretty much given up on school. He's asked the head teacher at his school now to just go and sit in detention and do his work, because he would rather do that than be in class and be made fun of, and it's sad that you know, there's no repercussions for the teachers. It's only for the students. Hmm. Well, Karen, I'm, I'm sorry. That, I'm sorry this is happening to your son. Um, what was your experience? Was the experience different in schools in Utah? Um, I think so. Um, it's hard to say. You know, I think that once a child gets labeled as a problem child, so to speak, that you know, teachers talk and things go around and. You know, it's hard for people to want to give them a second chance or really look past, you know, that, oh, maybe there's something going on with this child. Maybe they're having a hard time. You know, they just want to label them as, you know, a problem and kind of push them to the side. And so his grades have suffered. And, you know, he comes home and he's really upset and he cries and he's really depressed. And, you know, he's a good kid. He just needs somebody to take him under his wing, you know, and... Help him out, not yeah. not put him down in front of the whole it's, class. Yeah, I, certainly. Uh, Vanessa Walsh, what do, you, what do you think? Sometimes that seems to be almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. But you get labeled as a bad kid, so you maybe start getting a little disengaged anyway, and then the more you hear you're a bad kid, it almost becomes, I'd say, a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you start to believe it as a kid, right? You start disengaging from school and... Unfortunately, that can set a lot of students on a path of disengagement that will keep them from either graduating or, if they do graduate, from enrolling in a post-secondary school because of that feeling that was instilled in them that I'm a bad kid. It's it's unfortunate. I'm 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 sorry that that happened to your son and that he's going through that. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Karen. Uh, uh, yeah, appreciate your your experience. I'm sorry your your son's going through that. Good, good luck. We'll keep him in our thoughts. Um, so one of the I want to mention this summit that happened, school to prison uh, pipeline uh, summit, and uh, there there were some one one of the parts of this, Vanessa Walsh was some good examples, you know, the models we can we can go to to, to break the prison uh, school to prison pipeline. Uh, one of those was uh, especially with minority students, fifteen minutes. I, I don't know what fifteen minutes a day or fifteen minutes a week with a with a counselor seemed to have a a, a big positive effect. That does not surprise me. I think any time a student can connect one-on-one and feel like they have a mentor and feel like they have someone on their side, that's always a good thing. It, that, that information doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. I was trying to find that again to, to make sure I could uh, nail that down. Um, let's see. I've got it here, but I, I can't find it quickly enough. Uh, before, we, I know we'd, we need to move on here, but I, I want to talk about your – you did a, a separate study here, authored a separate study. Uh, with um, Native American students. Tell me about that. That study came to be, as you'll see in the report, a lot of, well, the majority of the disproportionality is impacting the American Indian students in our state, specifically with the harsh forms of punishment that expose a student directly to the juvenile justice system. The Native American population in Utah is the single most likely student population to be expelled to be referred to law enforcement and to be arrested at school. I, I think those are very alarming numbers, and I think it's something that I hope that our state and our school system and our resource officers and our legislature takes notice of. Those are those are shocking numbers. Some in some of the school disciplinary actions, they're up to thirteen times. The student group is up to thirteen times more likely to be exposed directly to the juvenile justice system for something that happened in school. Wow, that is pretty stark. And, and, and the Native American students already started a, a much lower graduation rate. Yes, yes. The, the graduation rate in the state of Utah in 2014 was 83% for all students, and for the American Indian student population, 65%. Uh, what, what are the reasons, you think? It's a cultural disconnect, people not understanding the students? What, what do you think? I think it's a combination of a lot of factors. I think there are... I think there are cultural differences. I think um, I think this student group is is already vulnerable because of 
where this population ranks in in health factors, in socioeconomic factors. I think it's a student group that's already vulnerable, and I, to expose them directly to the juvenile justice system, I think we are taking so many opportunities away from a group that should be should have more protections in place for them. Mm-hmm. I, I think thirteen to to be disciplined thirteen times more often than a white classmate. I, it's, it's shocking, and I think that it absolutely needs to be addressed. Where do you think the solution should be centered? Do you think we need a bill, such as Representative Holland's bill? Uh, uh, what, what, what do you think is, is most needed? I think that change happens at a district level and at a community level. I think that the more the community gets involved and the more the parents get involved and the more they interact with school administrators and educators and the more the dialogue happens, I think openness is where the, the key is. I think another major part of the solution is to get funding to our school districts so they can implement programs like post-behavioral intervention systems, the PBIS program, and to get additional training for the IEP process for students with disabilities. I, I always hate to say throwing money at a problem is a solution, but schools, schools can't fund these programs without getting money from the state budget to make it happen. Well, we'll uh, leave it there. We're at the end of time for this uh, segment. We've been talking with uh, Vanessa Walsh, who is a student at U- University of Utah Law School and uh, participated in one of the authors of the Public Policy Clinic's uh, report from 2014 uh, titled Finger Paint to Fingerprints, the School-to-Prison Pipeline in Utah. She also authored a separate study on uh, this, uh, the effect of this on uh, Native American students. Vanessa Walsh, uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Tom. And just if anyone wants to look at those reports, they can both be found at the school's website. Excellent. If anyone and is interested in more information. So thank you so very much. Thank you. And we'll have links uh, to, to those reports on our website as well, uh, upr.org. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. We're talking about the uh, school-to-prison pipeline. This is a phenomenon uh, studied in a 2014 report from the University of Utah Law School that as as discipline handed down to some students was diverting them out of public schools into the criminal justice system. The report found that non-white students and students with mental disabilities received disproportionate share of the discipline uh, handed out. And uh, Representative Sandra Hollins, Democrat from Salt Lake City, is planning on introducing a bill on this in the legislature. We'll be talking with Vanessa Walsh, author, uh, co-author of one of the of that study. And coming up following a break, we're going to be talking about this with representatives of several groups, Communities United, Racially Just Utah, and ACLU Utah. And I hope you'll keep your comments, uh, stories, questions coming as well. Uh, love to know if you've been affected uh, by this uh, as a parent, as a student, as a school administrator. 1-800-826-1495 is the toll-free number. 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com is the email. More following the break. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. Jalal Nuruddin is one of the founding members of the proto-hip-hop group The Last Poets. He'll join me in Studio Q for a wide-ranging conversation about his influence and work today. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. If you would like your business to be recognized for support of Utah Public Radio, contact UPR's underwriting manager, Terry Guy. Let her help you make that message a part of your commitment to the community. Call Terry at 435-797-3215 for more information. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are talking about the so-called school-to-prison pipeline in Utah. According to a uh, recent report from the Public Policy Clinic at the University of Utah Law School, discipline handed down to some students was diverting them out of public schools and into the criminal justice system through a combination of overly harsh zero-tolerance school policies and increased involvement of law enforcement uh, in the schools. And it concluded that non-white students and students with mental disabilities received a disproportionate share of the discipline handed out. We talked earlier in the program with Representative Sandra Hollins, Democrat from Salt Lake City, who's planning on running a bill on this in the legislative session. And we've been talking with University of Utah Law 
Plus a student and uh, an author of that report, Vanessa Walsh. We now uh, turn to uh, representatives of uh, several groups in Utah who are interested in the, this subject. We bring on uh, Luis Garza, who's Executive Director of Communities United. Mr. Garza, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, we bring in Nubia Pena, who is from Racially Just Utah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me as well. And Leah Farrell, who's a staff attorney at ACLU Utah. Thanks. Hi, Tom. Thank you. Let me start with uh, Luis Garza. I wonder, uh, in the communities you serve, are, are you seeing uh, some of these problems? Uh, students being singled out, uh, maybe uh, you know, ex- uh, suspended or expelled, and uh, and then on a different path than than toward the path we want them on, which is uh, toward you know uh, higher education. Yes, definitely. What what we are seeing is um, what we think is a disconnect between, you know, especially our organization focuses a lot on providing services to the Latino and immigrant community here in the Valley. So what we are seeing is a lot of, a a big disconnect between communities of color and the school system and the school administration. And so um, we hear many, many stories throughout throughout the year about, you know, students being disciplined and being really pushed out of the system. because of um, things that happen in the school that might not um, really be a necessity to have taken that action. And so what we're trying to do is really to encourage both students and parents to be more involved in the in the school system and, and really advocate for changes at the school level and, and become involved in decision-making bodies in those schools. Uh, tell me about, uh, understand uh, a program has been implemented in uh, uh, Rose Park School, uh, an example of this. I wonder if you could tell me about that. Yes, so, so we have a, a parent engagement program called uh, Committed Parents or Padres Comprometidos, and it's a, a program focused specifically uh, for different um, immigrant and communities of color uh, parents that are, are new to the school system. And so what, what it's focused on is to help people navigate the school system here in the United States and for parents to become advocates of their children. And so what, what that means is really encouraging parents to uh, speak up to get more involved and to really uh, put pressure on the administration to, so that it better addresses the needs of our of our students in the schools. And so, what we it's a it's an eight section um, course that really talks about how parents can be more involved, how uh, to build a relationship with the with the school, which we think is very important. You know that there's that open communication between the school and the parents and the and the students, so so issues like this can be addressed. So we've, we've been able to create forums where the school principal, the administration, meets with parents and meets with the students, and they openly talk about issues like this, um, which we think is, is really necessary in order for us to address this problem. I want to bring in Nubia Pena and uh, Leah Farrell. I want to get to an, an email uh, before we do that, and I'll have uh, any of our guests who, who want to respond to this. This is uh, putting out the word for, for personal experiences, either a student or a parent or school administrator. And uh, here's an email that came in from Jeff, uh, who emailed upraxcess at gmail.com. You can as well. Uh, Jeff says, I was very interested in today's Access Utah. I have a niece who has a child that has problems in the school system. We're always wondering how to handle this young man. I feel that the school does not handle him. They seem to want to have him sit down and shut up. It really does not work for him. He's very bright. We feel he needs to be motivated, but the school does not seem to know how. They want him to be like everyone else. What can we do? I don't know if any of my guests want to re- respond to that. Yeah, hi, this is actually Leah from the ACLU. Okay, Leah, let's... Let me... Is this Nubia? Pena? This is, yes. Okay, uh, let me have you go first, and then, then we'll get a reaction from Leah Farrell. So, uh, so Nubia Pena, go first. I was just saying that there's actually um, several practices that schools could implement that are available, that are evidence-based and um, empirically proven, that are engaging students at their level, that are encouraging them, motivating them, um, and and really implementing these practices and policies that are considering the students at an individual level. Um, PBIS is one that people are familiar with. That's the Positive Behavioral Interventions and Support System. Then we also have UMTS, which is the Utah Multi-Tiered System support. Um, 
And then there's also restorative justice practices where instead of referring to law enforcement or referring to criminal justice um, systems, we're actually using other practices, right? So we're using diversion programs such as Salt Lake City Peer Court, or we're using after-school programs to engage them and help them funnel their energy, motivate them, give them purpose. Um, But I really do think that if people wanted to sit down and strategize as to how we can more effectively address um, the very unique needs of these children, that, that there really are options. Uh, let me get a reaction to that from Leah Farrell uh, from ACLU Utah. What do, what do you think? Yeah, I would just you know echo what Nubia um, pointed out, and all, and also say that it, it you know it's a part of a a nationwide shift away from these uh, more strict disciplinary um, practices that result in push out and an understanding that um, that each individual student. Um, may need, uh, you know, something that's not in the, the, you know, treating them in the same way that um, teachers treat everyone else. But, you know, putting it in the larger context, when we talk about the, you know, the school-to-prison pipeline, we're talking about people who, students who are in school, and then um, there are certain actions that, you know, can raise their, the, the, chances that they end up um, in the criminal justice system and once that happens that they you know remain in the criminal justice system for a long time and understanding that as a you know country we really um, are putting too many people in prison that we have too many incarcerated people we really um, are making a shift towards addressing that um, problem wherever it happens but it does take it, take, it takes a change it takes a, a shift in how um, you know, law, law enforcement and administration and other people who have contact with um, these students, it takes a change in, in the mindset. Uh, I want to uh, jump off of Jeff's uh, example here and, and, and talk about s- some more solutions. We've, we've heard some. Uh, start with Leah Farrell, going to reverse order here. Leah Farrell with uh, ACLU Utah. Uh, so so the, the young man Jeff is talking about, uh, from Jeff's point of view, the school system just doesn't want to deal with this uh, this uh, this student. And I guess sometimes that can result in, okay, let's just hand him over to, to law enforcement. I wonder what, um, what do you think the solution is, especially with regard to the school-to-prison pipeline? Do you think, uh, what do you think, well, let me, let me put this specifically this way, what do you think ought to be in Representative Holland's bill? Do you think that's where, where it ought to be at the legislature? I think there's definitely a place for some statewide mandates and also uh, statewide resources. I heard your previous guest, Vanessa, kind of allude to that, that there are, it is a reality here in Utah that um, there are some areas of our state that have access to more resources to um, more restorative justice practices like Nubia referred to. And so looking at where around the state those um, need to be supplemented, and then also where we just need to recognize that there are you know standards that can be put in place statewide. So I do think there is a role um, for you know statewide bill, and then I also think we need to look at where the gaps in um, providing services to these you know schools that might feel frustrated or unable to deal with a certain student to say, you know, hey, there are other things that other schools are doing, and let's figure out how we can connect you with those practices. Um, and then also, yeah, uh, what Louise said about having, um, you know, family engagement um, to really you know, educate uh, communities about what their rights are and what the conversations that the school need to have with them before uh, the school takes, you know, these more extreme disciplinary actions like expulsion. So, you know, it's a, it, with a system like this, there are you know many angles. But I think uh, the good news is is that people are talking about it, and those conversations are happening. Uh, Nubia Pena, what uh, when we look at solutions, what what do you think is? You've mentioned a few. What what do you think is the top solution that uh, that you would suggest? Well, I think just by uh, being willing to have these conversations, right? So, I mean, I'm incredibly grateful that we're talking about this on radio so that people are able to understand that this is happening in our community. It's not something that just occurs in urban communities or in in, um, large cities like Chicago or Philly or New York, um, but that this is very much impacting Utah children. 
And one of the things that I encourage uh, educators and parents, policymakers, uh, law enforcement and community, um, community members is to recognize that I think we're all advocating for the same thing, and that's that we want safety for our children. We want them to be able to attend school climates that are encouraging and motivating. Uh, we want to be able to increase the graduation rates in Utah, uh, primarily and for me specifically, for children of color children with disabilities, children who are marginalized, such as English language learners. So when we talk about solutions, one of the things when you're mentioning school resource officers, um, you know, I think that there's been a misuse and overuse of law enforcement officials in schools. I think that there needs to be better training for our officers so that they're not liable for certain things that they should have never been placed in a position to address to begin with, that administrators have a better understanding of what the role is of school resource officers and how they're able to bring so much more to the community um, than just be an overuse or authoritarian. Um, and so, again, I think that it's just engaging in these conversations, but that's really wanting to shift the conversation outside of criminal justice referrals and really diversion programs. What can we do to keep our children outside of court so that it doesn't put them on a trajectory to eventually end up in um, adulthood as a criminal locked up, incarcerated? Uh, we want to see those numbers come down in our community as well. And we just have about a minute left. We'll give the last word on this to Luis Garza from Communities United. What do, what do, what do you think, a final word on this? Um, well, I think I definitely echo what it was mentioned already and just emphasize the need for resources and invest more on our students. And then the other thing that I, I would just add is the, the need for for schools to be prepared for this changing demographics here in the state of Utah, you know, that I feel like we need more training in terms of cultural competency, being able to address the needs of diverse populations in order for us to, to really create more of an inclusive place where everyone can thrive. So I think the you know, it's really great that we're talking about this already, and it's exciting that, that we are trying to look for solutions. Um, so I think we are definitely in the right path. We will uh, leave it there. And uh, uh, my thanks to uh, our responders, our listeners, uh, Jennifer and Karen and Jeff. Uh, and uh, uh, with, with the focus of today's program, we weren't able to address specifically, especially what uh, Jeff was talking about, but uh, future program, we, we may uh, address that uh, directly. So we appreciate you responding. Uh, we appreciate uh, Leah Farrell from ACLU Utah, Nubia Pena from Racially Just Utah, and uh, Luis Garza from Communities United joining us in this last segment. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, we appreciate also our previous guests, who included uh, Representative Hollins, who's going to be running a bill on this, and Vanessa Walsh, one of the authors of the report that we've been referencing. We'll have links to a lot of this information we've been mentioning on our website, upr.org. Hope you'll join us tomorrow for the Salt Lake Tribune's News Roundup Behind the Headlines. And, uh, of course, join me again on Monday for Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. It's a massive piece of music for full orchestra, 48 male singers, and a really good pianist. The Piano Concerto by Ferruccio Buzzoni. We'll hear it from a concert in Warsaw. The really good Garrick Olson at the keyboard with the Warsaw Philharmonic on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us Thursday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Robin Young. Bands often break up because of a romance, but Susan Tedeschi and Derek Trucks have a new album and say their music has made their marriage strong. People ask us all the time, like, how can you be in a band with your spouse? I'm like, you just have to marry the right spouse, 